James chapter 2, verse 14, going to the end of the chapter there. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. They shudder. You want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is God's word. You can sit down. Let's pray and ask for his help. Lord, just as a body without the Spirit is dead, so trying to understand your word without your Spirit is dead. So give us your Spirit's enlightening power. Open up our hearts. Speak into us what this means so that we may understand, so that we may glorify you, respond in faith. And Lord, may my teaching Follow your teaching. May in the power of the Spirit and not my own intellect or my own ideas, but from your word, Lord. Help us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, several months ago, I was in a conversation with a person who considers themselves a Christian, and they were considering two paths, one towards sin and the other towards obedience in Christ. And as I was urging this person towards Christ, their response was, well, it doesn't really matter. I'm forgiven no matter what, so I'm going to do whatever I want. Have you heard that before? Have you said that before? Well, that misunderstanding of salvation by grace through faith is at the core of what James is addressing here. In the latter part of of James chapter 1, James was teaching us that if the word has been implanted in us, that is written on our hearts as we understood it, then we should do the word, carry out the will of God, because it's written on us. And you can imagine that someone in his church has responded to him, but Pastor James, I'm forgiven. I am saved by grace. I'm justified before God, not by what I do, but through my faith in Christ. Therefore, I do not have to do what the Word says, because God says I'm forgiven. And he might have some Bible verses, mightn't he? 
Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, right? Romans 4, 4, and 5, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. His faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. To which James says, yes, and amen, amen to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith. But what is faith? Or more specifically, the question he's asking in this text is, what is saving faith? Look how James puts it in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Emphasis on the that. And with that, it's pretty clear what we're talking about is saving faith. What is the nature of saving faith? What kind of faith is saving faith? It's not easy to discern. On the one hand, you have have Paul in Romans chapter 10, who says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So it seems from Romans chapter 10 that, that faith is just calling on the name of the Lord, right? But Jesus says, not everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So which is it? Calling upon the name of the Lord or obeying the Father? Which one gets you into the eternal eternal kingdom? Who is right, Jesus or Paul? Are they even opposed to one another, though? And you're like, no, of course not. They're saying the same thing. Because Paul, in Titus 1.16, he tells us he has a category for this this person who's hanging around the church says they profess to know God, which is a something you say, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, fit for any good work. So that's Paul agreeing with Jesus. It seems Paul, just like Jesus, has a category for false Professors, people with a counterfeit faith. It should come as no surprise to us that Jesus and Paul teach the same thing, and so does James. What James is aiming at here in this morning's text is those folks who believe they are saved by faith alone, but who have misunderstood what saving faith is. The target audience of this text on a dead faith. He has in mind someone who, and we've been talking about this since chapter 1, someone who claims to be a Christian and perhaps is very confident in their profession of faith. Maybe she's been in the church a long time. And yet, when you look over the course of 5, 10, 20, 30 years, there's been no change in her life. 
She's the same bitter and selfish gossip that she's always been. She complains a lot. And everybody knows, everybody knows if you get on her bad side, watch out because vengeance is coming your way. James is going to say to to that person, you need to check under the hood. It could be that the faith that this person has, the faith that is meant to be driving this person towards Christ, is actually a dead faith. The engine is making a lot of noise, a whole lot of noise. And the person in the driver's seat is very good at pretending that they're going somewhere. But they aren't moving. And we're going to see James here say that is not the saving type of faith. To make his argument, James makes three logical moves in the text. And this is how we're going to break up the the, the sermon as well. The first logic move is by analogy. He's going to show us the powerlessness of empty faith by showing us what it's like. The second move in James's argument is what we call reducing to the absurd, reductio ad absurdum. In this second part, James will show the absurdity of the opposition argument. Knowledge and a kind of faith that saves. He's going to show us how absurd that is. And finally, his third move is historicity. In the third section, James appeals to the historical cases of was that going all the way back to the beginning, saving faith has always been an active faith. So there's three parts, then analogy, absurdity, and historicity. So let's start with, with, with James's analogy. You see, this is in, in 17, 15 through 17. Is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is it? So also, do you see what he See between and the overall argument. What is being by this illustration is whether this person really meant what they said. Do they really have compassion? Do they truly desire with their whole being that the needy person be warmed and filled? Or are they just saying, I recognize that you're cold and hungry. That's too bad. This is what we would call hashtag activism. Hashtag, I stand with the naked and hungry. Hashtag, I can't breathe. Or we put up a French flag or a black square or a Ukrainian flag. Thing, right? James's argument from analogy is... ...care for them. They would care for them. The, the argument from analogy is that saying, with just a words, saying, go in peace, be warmed and filled, but not acting on that profession is like professing Jesus as Lord and Savior, but not living in the reality of Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
How would anyone know if you believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior? How could the truth of that statement, that profession, be tested? Well, it would be tested in the same way that the person who says he cares for the poor. The person who says he cares for the poor would prove it by caring for the poor, providing food, providing clothing. So it is with genuine faith. That's, that's what he's getting at. If you have genuine saving faith, then that faith shows. That's James's position. He doesn't say here all do with how we love one another as Christians. Right? This is the second illustration in a row. Where, where James is bringing up care for the poor. Four, chapter 2, 2 through 4, the poor are being treated with no dignity. They were dishonored. They're treated as lesser humans. And the point was that that, that type of treatment in the church, that's counter to what Christ is doing in us. If we have truly been saved then one of the fruits of our salvation is love. This, this week, in, in this text, the poor in the church are, are being given lip service and hashtags. So someone might have even said with their, with their arms full of groceries, that's tough, I'll be praying for you. But no one's showing them love. Look again at, at verse 15, though. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking food. Brother or sister, again, this is, this is love within the church is what James is talking about. This is a church family reference. James is assuming that true Christians know we are to love one another and take care of one another. He's been teaching this. He's instructed his churches in this way. He's heard this from, from Christ himself. Right? We find this in Matthew 25. Jesus is teaching there about his own return. Matthew 25, he says, when he comes back as the judge and shepherd of all the nations, he's going to separate the sheep and the goats. The sheep on the right, the goats on the left, and the sheep will hear this from Jesus. This is what Jesus says to the sheep. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So that's... That's election language, that's predestination language, blessed by the Father from before the foundation of the world. The blessing there is faith in Christ, the new birth in the Spirit, and the reward is the kingdom. So the sheep are the elect, and God's blessing is the foundation, the, the grounds of their salvation. But then Jesus goes on to say how it is that their election was proven, because they don't get it. He says, for I was hungry, you gave me food, I was thirsty, you gave me drink, I was a stranger, you welcomed me, I I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And he goes on to say that this charity was not for the poor in the world at large, but the poor in the church, the brothers and sisters in the church. Truly I say to you, the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So James, remembering that from Jesus, hunger and nakedness straight from that lesson, and he's imported it into his argument from analogy. About love for brothers and sisters in the church. This is a, a necessary fruit 
that will come from those who are truly in Christ. Secondly, he's also reminding us of the, the type of faith, the quality of faith that will be proven genuine at the final judgment. It is, according to Jesus, the kind of faith that bears the fruit of brotherly love. And that moves us into the second section of James's argument, the absurdity of empty faith. In this section, James shows us a little bit more of what possibly what he's been hearing from someone in the church. And the pushback is along the lines that faith and works can be separated from one another. And it goes something like this. Okay, we would all agree that one can do good works without saving faith. Therefore, because one can have good works without saving faith, one can also have saving faith without good works. That's the argument. I mean, think about it. You and, you, and, you and I, we can all think of plenty of people who are feeding and clothing the poor, but do not have saving faith. Not everyone who works at the homeless shelter is a Christian. And aren't there moral atheists? Unbelieving people who take care of their neighbors simply because they're neighbors? And aren't there compassionate Mormons and, and caring Muslims? Therefore, because good works and saving faith are distinct, the argument goes, one could have saving faith without the works. And we see this very briefly, the way that it's uh, kind of put in, in, in verse 18. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, so here's his imaginary uh, person who's arguing with him, probably someone who has said this, but someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. It's a very short argument, but it's, it's trying to show that there is a separation between the two concepts. Faith and works aren't necessarily connected, is what the responder is saying. But there's a logical problem here. And this is where I very rarely do you hear my philosophy major coming out in preaching. Today is just going to be one of those days for you. I love logic, and I love logic problems, and there's a logical problem here. Think about the statement, the sidewalk is wet because it rained. Just think about that. What the opponents to James are saying, essentially, because a sidewalk can be made wet without it raining, like you could pour a cup of water on it, the sprinkler could get it, the sidewalk can be made wet without it raining, Therefore, rain and a wet sidewalk are not necessarily linked. Because works can be had without faith, faith and works are not necessarily linked. And here's how James responds. He, he, he needles at the fallacy here. Look at the rest of verse 18. Show me then. Show me. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. Show me. James is he's from Missouri. Show me. Prove it. Show me that you have faith. Show me your so-called rain that doesn't wet the sidewalk. It goes without saying here. You can't. You cannot show faith without fruit from that faith. In fact, if you attempt 
to show faith apart from works without, if you attempt to show faith without the fruit from the faith, faith apart from works, it's just going to be a, 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 a knowledge and words kind of faith. It's the kind of faith that only says, I believe that Jesus is God and Savior, Lord and Christ. To which James would say in verse 19, good for you. You, you. you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons do. And they shudder. And this is, in my opinion, this is just Dustin, this is, I think, the most devastating argument against the idea that saving faith is simply intellectual belief. Here's, here's what he's saying. Okay. So you say that you believe that God is one. And this, this by the way, is a, a reference to the Trinity. God the Father, God, God is Father, God is Son, God is Spirit, and He is one essence. It's, it's an acknowledgement that Jesus is God. Okay, so great. So you have very good theology. You believe the truth. So do demons. In fact, when you read the Gospels, it is often the demons who are saying things to Jesus like, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. The, the demons at various points in the Gospels were better theologians than the disciples. In fact, even today, if we were to give a legion of demons a theology test, and then we were to give all of you the same test, I would be willing to bet that the demons would have a higher average score on that test than we would. We, we see through a mirror dimly, right? But some of them have been in the very courts of heaven. They can talk your ears off telling you about God. And here's something else impressive about the demons. When the demons acknowledge that God is one, it reminds them of the judgment that is to come, and they're terrified. They shudder at the thought of who Jesus is. Look at that. Look at verse 19. You see that, that little that hyphen, that dash there? What's happening with that dash is James is forcing us to think of how, he, how we would respond to the knowledge of God. He's saying, at least the demons are afraid of God. At least their knowledge of God leads them to be affected in some way. But some of you, kind of what's inside that dash, some of you, you say that God is one and it doesn't affect you at all. There's no change in your countenance, no change in your life, no change in your will, no change in your behavior, no change in your affections. He's sort of poking at them saying, you're worse than demons. Back to James's argument. Here's the point. Here's what he's saying. If saving faith were mere knowledge, mere belief, then we'd have to say that demons also have saving faith because they know and they believe. But leads to the next question, but are demons being saved through their knowledge? No, of course not. That's why it's reduced to the absurd. He's, he's taking the argument, following it to its logical conclusion, and saying, if you argue that, you're going to have to say that demons are saved. And everyone says they're not, so of course not. Their belief, their so-called faith, is not saving faith. 
And that's the, the, the point here where we see the absurdity. Of course, the demons don't have saving faith. Though the demons believe God, they are enemies of God. So genuine saving faith must be something more than what demons have. See where James is going? And it is here that James begins to make the positive argument. He, he, he's, he's moving towards a, 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 a forceful, positive example of what saving faith is. The grounds for his argument come from two historical figures, Abraham the Hebrew and Rahab the Gentile. So this is section three, if you're taking notes, the argument from historicity. Look at verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And in between the lines, he says, well, I'm going to show you. Here is the argument that true saving faith produces, bears the fruit of, good works. So let's go back to the very first person who the Bible says was justified by faith. Abraham himself, look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, where in the Bible, where in the world is James getting this? Because there isn't anything in the Bible that says Abraham was justified by his works, nor is there anything in the Bible that says Abraham was justified when he offered up Isaac. Where's James getting this? The only thing that you're going to come to see in, in, in that section of Abraham and Isaac and the angel of the Lord is where Isaac is, is about to be offered and the angel of the Lord stops him and he says, now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham proved his faith. Now the angel knows but it doesn't say, does not say, Abraham was justified at that moment. So here's what James is doing. James, is, James knows what he's doing, okay? He's not, he doesn't have a different Bible than us. He knows that we know the Abraham story. He knows that we know that the Isaac sacrifice is at the end of the Abraham story, or very close to the end. And he knows that we know that at the very beginning of the Abraham story is where the Bible says he was justified by faith. And that's what he's leaning on here. In Genesis 15, when, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he says, your very own son will be your heir, and then he tells him to look at the stars, and then he says, so shall your offspring be. That's the moment. That's the pivotal moment. Genesis 15, 6, where the Bible says, and he believed the Lord, and what? It was counted to him as righteousness. That is when Abraham was justified by faith. And James is not arguing against that. Did I say James? Abraham was justified by faith. James is not arguing against that. He's not arguing against the validity of, of Genesis 15. He's not arguing against Paul's interpretation of Genesis 15. He wouldn't dare. What he's doing is proving that the kind of belief that Abraham had in Genesis 15, verse 6, when Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness, that faith was the saving kind of faith. He's saying, look, we all agree. 
Abraham was justified by faith. Let's start there. But what I want you to see is the quality of, of Abraham's faith, the type of faith that Abraham had that justified him. What type of faith was it? Was it the kind of faith that produces good works? Or was it the kind of faith that is alone? And so you fast forward to Genesis 22 with the sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Abraham's faith was tested by God. And when that faith was tested, it proved genuine. Peter says that our trials are tests, right? To, to prove the, the gold in our faith. And that's what God was doing to Abraham. He was proving the gold within the genuineness of Abraham's faith. And it proved to be the type of faith that produces good works. It was the real saving type of faith. That's why James says in verse 22, you see that faith from chapter 15 was active along with his works in chapter 22. And faith was completed by his works. Where it says faith was completed by his work, he's, he's saying Abraham's faith reached its fulfillment, its, uh, uh, its visibility, I don't know how to describe it. it, completed is the word he's using, it's a, it's a word for filled up, matured, and that's when he was called a friend of God. That's, that's where it happened for him. The scripture was also fulfilled, completed. Look at verse 23. Scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted in his righteousness. So that scripture was Genesis chapter 15. It was fulfilled. It came to be seen in Genesis chapter 22. But it was already true in Genesis chapter 15. Are you tracking with me? James is not denying that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's affirming that. Just as Paul does in Romans, just as Luther and Calvin and every Bible-believing Christian for all time has affirmed, Abraham was most definitely justified by faith. But that justification by faith that had already happened in Genesis 15 was fulfilled, that is, it was seen in the testing of Genesis 22. Through God's testing and through Abraham's response, the solid gold faith in God's promises that Abraham had, the trust in God that was already saving Abraham, that was proven. So we get to see it. To which James makes this controversial statement in verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay. Now... If you've been at our church for any length of time and you've heard me preaching, here's what you know. I'm going to say what the text says, and I'm going to tell you what it means. And it's dangerous when a preacher says, this is what the text says, and then he tells you that it means something opposite of what it says, right? That's dangerous. I had a pastor once when I was in college. This was actually the first pastor that I had heard work his way systematically verse by verse, through a book of the Bible. And I loved it. That was just wet my appetite for it, and I, I never was able to let it go after that. I had grown to trust this pastor uh, through, through his teaching over time and, and his interpretation of the text. And he, he would consistently say, this is what it says, and then he would connect it very clearly, this is what it means. 
Well, he was going through the book of Exodus. And he got to that place where the Bible says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I was kind of a young believer at that time. And Pastor Wayne said, that's what it says. That's not what it means. And then he taught the opposite of what the text says. He, Im- he imposed his own theology onto the text and didn't let the word of God speak for itself. So what do you think happened to me? 18-year-old, young Christian, who had been just lapping up everything that he said because he was showing me. Well, my trust went down. I went from 10 out of 10 trust level to somewhere closer to a four. So, so I want to be very careful here and not say what James says is not what he means. That would be disingenuous and would be forcing my opinion onto the text and would give you reason not to trust my, my exposition of the text. I don't want to do that, so let's be very careful here. Walk with me. First things first, I want us here right now to listen to James not as a comparison to Romans or the five solas of the Reformation, but I want us to listen to James in isolation. Can we do that? That is, let James speak for himself. What has he been saying? And to do that, secondly, we have to read him in context. Do not forget the context of this passage. One of my favorite teachers says a text without a context is a pretext for proof text. Context is king when it comes to interpretation. That is most definitely true for this verse, isn't it? Take this passage out of context and you will end up swimming in the Tiber or the Great Salt Lake. So, So the context here is that James... For the, next 23, for the last 23 verses, he's been proving to us this truth. Genuine saving faith produces good works. That's what he's been proving to us. And he's just shown us in Abraham's life that when genuine saving faith is tested, it's proven genuine through what is seen in the test, what comes out of the test. His aim has been to show us that. That, 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 that they aren't the same thing Saving faith is always proven by works. Though they are not equal, though they are not the same thing, though they are distinct, they are always together. So how do we understand verse 24 with that in mind? You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So the key word is alone. True saving faith is never alone, is what James is saying. True saving faith is never alone. It is true that genuine saving faith is the instrument through which we are saved. Saving faith is the golden ticket into the kingdom. And James would say this as well. The only thing that makes you right before God is what? Christ's work for you. Your identity with Christ's person and work. The means through which we identify with Christ in a saving way is through Faith. Faith is what puts us in Christ. And that faith comes from God. The way that James put it in chapter 1, verse 18. Don't miss chapter 1, verse 18. It's it's foundational to his theology. By God's will, he said, not our work, but by God's will, we are brought forth by the word of truth. That's foundational to our salvation. And what is saving our souls? Well, verse 21 says the implanted word, the word that God implanted in us. 
is saving our souls. He says, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And we've understood that word to be the Holy Spirit bringing of Christ to us, in us. So, so, so when James says, receive with meekness the implanted word, that word receive is very much faith language. That's describing what faith does. It receives. But that genuine type of faith that has been given to us by God when we receive the word that produces necessarily obedience to God, the holiness of God, compassion, and the character of God, control over our sinful flesh, love, especially love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Those things are what James has been calling works in our passage. So in the context of James chapter 1 and 2 and the rest of the book, James is answering the question, which type of faith saves? The whole person type of faith that produces good works or the type of intellectual faith that sits alone and thinks about God but does not produce anything? To which James very clearly answers the type of faith that produces good works, that's the saving type. That is the justifying saving type of faith, and that type of faith is never alone. Saving faith is never alone. Saving faith is not the type of faith that sits alone. Good works, especially the work of love, always follow the kind of faith that saves, because the kind of faith that saves is from God, and God is love. But the kind of faith that does not save is just us. It's us saying, we believe. It's us agreeing at a distance with the truth. It might even be us saying we love God. It might even be us praying. It might even be us walking down the aisle for an altar call. It might, might, might be us reading theology books or watching YouTube preachers and listening to lots and lots and lots of podcasts. It might be us going to seminary. It might be us debating theology till we're blue in the face. But it doesn't save if it's dead and empty. If the kind of faith that we have is something that comes from our lifeless flesh, then it will not bear the fruit that Christ does when he's in us. If it is not a spirit-born, God-wrought, Christ-abiding faith, then it's not a justifying faith. A spirit-born faith comes from God, unites us to Christ, and from our union with Christ, like a branch in its union with the vine... From that union, Christ in us produces us the works that please God. Let me say that again because I messed up. A spirit-born faith comes from God, unites us to Christ, all right? It's from God, it unites us to Christ, and from our union with Christ, that link with Christ, like a, a branch in its union with the vine, from that union, Christ in us produces in us the works that please God, the fruit. And that is the case not only for those who are ethnically Jewish, like Abraham, and united to Christ by faith, but also for Gentiles. Genuine saving faith has the same quality 
It's the same type. It's the same thing, whether you are Abraham, the revered father of the Jewish nation, or you are a Gentile prostitute. Look at verse 25. And in the same way, so it's exactly like Abraham, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now think back to the story of Rahab that Ashley read for us in Joshua 2 earlier in our worship. Rahab made a verbal assertion. She said something. She said, I know that the Lord is giving you this land. And this statement of her professes some kind of faith, right? She said it. She says she knows it. It's some, something that you could call faith, right? You could call it belief of some sort. But what kind of faith was it? Was it the kind of faith that resides in the brain, in the mouth alone? Or was it a different kind of faith? How would we know? Well, did she simply say to the Hebrew spies, good luck? I know you're on the right side, that you serve the true God and then turn them into the soldiers. She didn't do that. No, she believed the Lord. She believed that the Lord was the one true God who was, who was giving Israel the land, and she showed that faith through her loyalty to God and Israel. She hid the spies. She, she didn't give the enemies of God information that would have helped them. And she sent the bad guys in the opposite direction. Her faith, which justified her, was proven by her faithfulness. Her belief was not impotent. It was, it was the kind of belief that produced love for the people of God. Her faith was not demonic in that she didn't just say she knew the power of God, and she didn't just fear God and then continue on as an enemy of God. No, by her faith, she was transferred from the dark domain of Jericho to the kingdom of Israel by God's grace. It was an effective faith. Her faith was not dead. It was a living faith. Her faith was an all of life, lay down your life, entrust your life to God type of faith. She had the type of faith that produces works. And so when judgment day for Jericho came, she was counted as righteous. She was judged as one belonging to the Lord and not Jericho. And her life was preserved on Jericho's day of judgment. As James puts it, she was justified. And this brings us to James' concluding statement. This is his final answer to the beginning question. Can a faith that does not produce good works save a man? No. That kind of faith is dead. As dead as a man not breathing is dead. Look at verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit, spirit is the word for, for breath there, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Hey, you could call a man who's not breathing a man. But he's a dead man. His spirit has left him. In the same way, you could call a man-made faith, faith. You can call it that. But it isn't a living faith. It isn't a spirit-wrought, Christ-unifying, justifying-before-the-Father type of faith. And how do you know? Because it isn't creating in you the likeness of Christ. It isn't connecting you to Christ and so producing from Christ the fruit of a love for the church, compassion for the hurting. It isn't receiving those immune defenses against sin and producing a healthy desire for holiness. That kind of faith, authentic faith, comes from God alone and produces the kind of fruit that pleases God. 
So to go all the way back to the beginning, can I do whatever I want because I'm saved by faith? Here's the answer. A saving faith as it is completed in your soul, as it matures in your soul, that saving faith, that justifying faith, makes you want what God wants. A saving faith does this. It identifies with our crucified Savior and realizes, that's me. Dead on the cross with Jesus. That's what faith does. A saving faith then sees the risen Savior and says, that's also me. Risen to new life in Christ. The old me is gone on the cross, dead, nailed to the cross. The new me is there in Christ, risen. A saving faith then sees a glorified Savior standing at God's right hand in heaven and says, that's me, that's where I am. Whole in Christ, pure in Christ, holy in Christ. And that's what the Holy Spirit is creating in me. That's saving faith. Do you have that faith? Because if you do, if you have been born again through faith in Christ, if you've been united to Christ, then that means the old you has been crucified with Christ. The way that we show that as Christians is through baptism. So if you've been baptized into Christ's death and raised up with Christ's resurrection, commemorated at our baptism, then one of the means that Christ uses to continuously nourish you is through the meal that we're about to share together, the Lord's Supper. At the supper, the Lord is here with us through the Spirit, and he reminds us of all that we are now in him, which is to say our very livelihood, our very life and breath, our Christ, our sustenance is Christ himself. Our identity is in Christ. His body and blood give us life. The bread that we're about to partake of is the symbol of his body. The wine, the symbol of his blood. They are Christ for you. They signify Christ in you. But if Christ is not in you through faith, or if you have realized through listening to James today that all your life you have been resting on a counterfeit dead faith, a faith that has not given you Christ, but instead has given you just more of yourself. Because your faith was just in the imaginary God. And you've just gotten more of you through what you have called faith. Friend, today, I would ask, if you've realized that, that you would stay in the pew today. Rather than coming down to the table, stay in the pew and pray. And I want you to know this, even today... Christ is freely offering himself to you. So receive him with grace. Repent of your own striving and receive him as king and receive him as savior. And I would invite you after the service this morning, when we're all done here this morning, talk to the person that you came with. This is, this is not 
This is a serious matter. This is not something to blow off as just another sermon. Because James is talking to you. The Spirit is talking to you through the Word. So I would invite you after the service, talk to the person you came with, or come and talk to me, talk to Dustin or, or Josh. He'll be up here in front with me. We would love to disciple you. We would love to walk with you as you follow Christ now.